You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. All right, so whether you're here in person uh, or watching online, I'm glad that you could join with us as we continue our sermon series, Ears to Hear, which is turning out to be a humbling and convicting study through the first three chapters of Revelation, right? At least for me it is. It's been uh, pretty intense even just studying through it and preparing the messages, and today's going to be no different. It's going to be hard-hitting. You might not like some of the things I say, so sorry, but not sorry. Um, Anyways, this last Wednesday, I decided to meet a pastor friend of mine for coffee so that we could vent. I mean, I mean, so that we could encourage each other as peers in the ministry. Uh, the, the only issue is that he's from Calgary, and I'm, of course, from Lethbridge. So instead of one of us driving four hours, you know, the two hours there and back, we, we decided to meet in the middle in a little coffee shop in Nanton. And yeah, even though it was Nanton... We actually found a nice little coffee shop there, actually. But uh, this arrangement of meeting in the middle ended up being a good compromise for us. In that scenario, compromise was a good thing. But compromise isn't always good, is it? Especially when it causes us to lower the standards of our values or our faith or our health or something like that. For example, growing up, I was always a rule follower mostly because I didn't like getting into trouble, uh, but also because I wanted to be a police officer, and so I wanted to respect the law. So, so I, I believed in that stuff, right? It was important to me. But when I was in grade nine, a couple of my friends and I, we walked to 7-Eleven on our lunch break, and one of them got it in their head that we should jaywalk across Mayor McGrath uh, instead of walking all the way to the crosswalk, because that would be faster to get back to school. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to break the law. But eventually, they, they peer pressured me into it, saying, well, I was being stupid. Jaywalking's no big deal. Nobody cares, which is probably what some of you are thinking right now. It's a big deal. Just cross the street, Greg, you chicken, right? And, and, so, and so away we went, dodging past cars and, and eventually making it to the other side. But that's when the police siren went off. Fortunately, we only rece- received a stern warning from the police officer, but the lesson was learned. I'm sure we all looked pretty sheepish and embarrassed as we made our way back to school. But then about a year later, I was, I was hanging out downtown on a Friday afternoon with another friend, and we decided to jaywalk across Fifth Street over here, um, right before the light turned green, so we had to run across. And even as shame, shameful memories of, of being caught for jaywalking flashed through my mind, I was more concerned with not looking like a, like a chicken again in front of my friend. And so once again, I compromised my values and broke the law. But then, as if on cue, the siren of a ghost car went off right beside us. We jaywalked right in front of a police car. Fortunately, I just got another warning, a very stern warning. Needless to say, I didn't jaywalk over a busy street again for some time. But then the next year, after hanging out at a friend's house, a bunch of us decided to walk home, and you guessed it, I went along with my friends and jaywalked across one of the streets. This time there were no sirens, though. Instead, the police car just drove up right next to us. I, I still remember my heart sinking to the bottom of my chest. I've been through this twice before, right? But, but again, thankfully, I only received a warning. 
You know, it's almost like they were just waiting for me to jaywalk. And so if you see me hesitating to jaywalk, this is why, okay? Uh, and, and make no mistake, for, for me, these didn't just feel like warnings against jaywalking. They were wake-up calls for me that, that, that it wasn't worth it to compromise my values or ignore my conscience, no matter who was trying to pressure me or persuade me to do otherwise. And, and as we dig into the next letter through Revelation, which was written to the church in the city of Pergamum, we'll find that they're also being warned against not only tolerating, but being influenced by some within their church community who were pressuring them into compromising their faith in exchange for the sinful practices of Greco-Roman paganism. So they were literally being led to throw up their arms and and exclaim, when in Rome? But in doing so, they were cheating on Christ, they were killing their spirit, and warring against the righteousness of God. So this letter to them is Jesus warning the church to quit listening to these wolves in sheep's clothing, and instead to turn their faith back upon him, where they could find grace and eternal life. So please turn with me now as we read this pretty hard-hitting letter to Pergamum, and as always, I would ask that you follow along with ears to hear, so that the Spirit may bring conviction where we need to be convicted, and that we would be drawn deeper into the loving arms of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Revelation 2, 12 to 17. This is John writing the words of Jesus to the church in Pergamum. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. I'm just going to pray really quick. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that as we go through it this morning, as we we study it, Lord, that, that it would cut to the depths of our hearts and draw out anything that you want to draw out, Lord God. That you would bring, bring healing. Lord God, that you would bring grace. That you would bring mercy. That you would draw us closer to you, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the letter starts with Jesus telling the church in Pergamum, I know where you dwell. I know where you dwell. And this is probably one of the most comforting and encouraging words in Scripture, if we, if we actually think about it. Jesus knows where we live. This doesn't just mean he knows the address to your house, right? It means he knows what, what you're dealing with. 
It means he knows what temptations or persecutions or pressures we have to wrestle with day in and day out. And it also means that he meets us where we're at. We don't need to meet him where, where he's at or we'd have to be perfect, right? But he meets us where we're at. And it also means that he's standing by to carry us through it all. This is what he's telling the church in Pergamum. He's saying to them, I know what you're dealing with. I know what you're going through. I know the spiritual battle that's going on around you. I know that what you have to faithfully stand up against each day as you follow me. In fact, he knows just how bad they have it, right? He describes the city as the very location of the throne of Satan, which is pretty intense. And then later in the letter, he, he describes it as a place where Satan dwells. So they live where, where Satan lives. Spiritual speaking, spiritually speaking, this would mean that they live in a city which runs in, in direct contrast or, or complete spiritual opposition to God and his will. And if you know anything about Pergamum in those days, this wouldn't be a surprising statement because this city, which, which had a population that was about one and a half times bigger than, than Lethbridge, the city was steeped in paganism, in idolatry, in emperor worship, and in sexual immorality. It was basically the Sodom and, and Gomorrah of the Roman Empire. And Pergamum had also secured special favor for helping the Romans like 100 or so years before this in their, in their conquest of the region of Asia Minor, and had also constructed a temple dedicated to the worship of Caesar Augustus. And, and so they had therefore been rewarded by Rome uh, as being named the capital city of the Roman province of Asia Minor. So what this also means is that, that, that a Roman proconsul, which is a fancy name for the Roman regional leader or governor, would have been positioned in the city as well. And he would have carried with him the right of ius gladi. That's an Italian phrase. I'm probably saying it wrong. I don't know any Italians here that would know. Ius gladi. Does that sound better? Ius gladi. It's an Italian phrase, which meant the right of the sword, right? It's like intense. Ius gladi. The right of the sword. It's such a contrast. I would have called it something different. Um, but anyways, <laughs> I think, it, uh, whatever. Uh, <laughs> so those who carried the right of the sword right? That's so intense, right? They carried the authority, actually, of the Roman Empire, and therefore they had to write the right to judge, imprison, and even carry out executions. Anyone, can anyone think of another proconsul that would have had that right? Pontius Pilate, yes. He would have been the proconsul as well, carrying the right of the sword. One thing we also have to understand as well as that those within the Greco-Roman culture also believed that the Roman Empire itself represented and carried the authority of Zeus and the pantheon of all the gods under him. Which meant that those with the right of the sword were not only seen as holding the power of the Roman Empire in their hands, but also the power of, of all these gods that they believed in. So th this, is, this is the power that, that Rome held over its citizens in Pergamum. And in the middle of the city was what the Romans called an Acropolis. So this was a steep mountain or, or a hill on which was built many altars and temples to various gods, like Zeus, right? We all know Zeus, his, and his temple was actually decorated with a bunch of serpents. We know what the serpent, serpent means in the Bible, right? And um, also there's an altar to the god Apollo. Actually, Zeus and Apollo shared an altar, and Apollo is the god of healing, poetry, and archery. And then there's uh, Dionysius, 
who is the god of wine and debauchery, and we'll talk about him a little bit later. And then there's Asclepios, who's the god of medicine. So there's altars to all these people. And uh, I should mention the god of Asclepius. He, his symbol was a staff with, with two serpents wrapped around it. Anyone familiar with that logo? We still use it in the medical world today. And of course, on, on uh, the Acropolis was that temple that was dedicated to the emperor and past emperors, which actually held one of the biggest sects of the cult of the emperor. So there's a lot of, lot of paganism going on on this Acropolis, right? Uh, many, many, Roman, Ro- many Roman cities had an Acropolis like this, though Pergamum's is known for being one of the steepest and most thorough with all its temples and altars. So again, when Jesus says the throne of Satan dwelt there, he could have been referring to this Acropolis as a whole or possibly to one of the specific altars or, or structures on the hill. We don't know. Either way, the point is that, that Pergamum as a city was deeply pagan and in bed with, with the world and with Rome, especially in their idolatry and their immorality. In, in fact, the, the word Pergamum itself means marriage. And it was definitely married to the world. And in contrast to this, the Bible often refers to the church as being betrothed to Christ, as the bride of the bridegroom. And it says when Jesus returns again, he's going to take his perfected bride and present us before the Lord. But the issue with the church in Pergamum is that they've been compromising their betrothal to the Lord by committing adultery with the city through taking part in this immorality. And this was also leading them to commit idolatry as well. 1 Corinthians 5, 15-20 speaks to this problem of adultery. It says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. So flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So Paul's saying to the Corinthians to not just stop being immoral, but to flee from it. To flee from it because they're cheating on Christ. And later in the letter, he urges them to flee from idolatry as well for the same reason. And Jesus himself here is warning the church in Pergamum to do the same. To stop compromising their, their covenant and allegiance to Christ for the things of the world because they only lead to death. And, and besides, as it says in James 4.4, 4, it says, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So the truth is that Jesus doesn't want us to be his enemy, right? So he's warning the church to turn back to him and back into his grace before he comes again in righteous judgment. The problem with compromise, though, is that we rarely see the damning effects of it right away. Right? It's often an expedient payoff with a slow negative burn. Right? We think, oh, what could be the problem? It's just a little fun. No one's getting hurt. 
The comp compromise often starts small. Like, for example, say a Christian girl decides to compromise her standards and starts dating an unbeliever. He's a nice guy. This is no big deal. He even comes to church with her sometimes. And things are going well. But then inevitably, he starts nudging her to compromise her values at the bar or in the bedroom, too. Because for him, it's no big deal, right? Or when they eventually get married, he says, oh, no problem, you can go to church whenever you want. That's fine with me. But then over time, he starts asking her to stay home on Sundays or to go to the golf, golf course with him instead. And then eventually, church and faith become less and less of a priority to her and then non-existent. And you may think, oh, this sounds like a cliche story. But I've seen it. I've seen it multiple times. I can't even count how many times I've had someone come to me and say, oh, Pastor Greg, I wish I would have listened to your advice a year ago, right? I've seen it multiple times. And this is what was happening with the church in Pergamum. They'd started courting the world and were slowly but surely being pulled away from Christ. Compromising your faith and values for the things of the world it never goes well for us Christians. We often just don't realize it until it's too late. And that's why Jesus warns them and he calls them to repent before it's too late. Revelation 2.16, he says, Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. And remember, he's speaking to them out of love and with empathy. We learned that in the, in the intro to the series, right? He's speaking to them out of love and empathy as one who's been tempted himself, but who has overcome. As he says, he knows that they live in the same city as Satan. He knows that the temptation to compromise in that city is stronger than anywhere else, and for many reasons, and especially so, because they'd allowed people within their church to encourage it. And it's, and it's the same for us. Jesus knows where we live as well. He knows that we live in a society which is increasingly pressuring the church to adopt and accept and condone its hypersexualized ethics, politically religious fervor, and its blatant idolatry. Jesus knows what we're up against and the temptations that we face daily, whether on the internet or at work or in the public sphere. He knows the temptations to compromise his commandment and call to be holy. And he knows we're being pressured to celebrate sin as if it's okay. And I want to be clear that this is, this is the primary issue here. The issue Jesus has with the church in Pergamum isn't with those who would mess up once in a while and give in to sin sometimes. We all do that. Right? We all do that. We're all sinners, but the good news is, is that there's always grace and repentance available for sin when we come to Christ in repentance. Rather, rather, the issue being brought up here is that there were people within the church who had chosen to compromise the truth and have been taking that, that the, what the Word of God clearly is in and then turning it around and then saying it's okay. Romans 1.32 describes these type of people well. It says, although they know God's righteous decree against idolatry and sexual immorality, that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. As, as humans, again, we, we have an uncanny ability to justify our compromises, don't we? 
Again, we, we say things like, oh, what could go wrong? What's so bad about doing that if it, if it feels right? Nothing happened the last time I did it. We're not old-fashioned, right? This is the year 2020. This is just what people do now. Or God is love and he just wants us to have a good time. And we're so good at convincing ourselves that, that we can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that God's going to be good with it. But we're only fooling ourselves and, and heading for death. Why death? Because the wages of sin is death. The good news is that Jesus brings the dead to life, though. And he's inviting them to come to him to find life and to be on guard for the things which might cause them to compromise and lead them to death. And on that end, I want to highlight six specific things from the passage this morning that, that could lead us to compromise our faith. Six things that we should be on guard for, and of course, how Jesus calls us to respond to them. All right, so six ways that we could be tempted to compromise our faith. The first way is through persecution, for experiencing persecution. Uh, in this type of culture, in Pergamum, it's, it's no surprise that they were being persecuted and, and suffering for the name of Jesus. First Peter 4, 3 to 6, or sorry, 1 Sorry, 1 to 4. I don't know. First Peter 1, 1 to 4. I don't know. 4, 1 to 4. I don't know. I got the, I got the wrong. Whatever it is. First Peter 4, 1 to 4, I think, says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that has passed suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, Right, this is describing almost a certain per Pergamum here, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. So th this is what's happening to the church in Pergamum. They're like, hey, why aren't you joining with us? And we're even told that someone from their community named Antipas had been put to death for following Jesus as his faithful witness. And Jesus notes that the church was also able to, to stand firm in his faith even in the midst of this, and he, and he commends them for it, that they weren't giving in to this persecution. But the truth is that many before and after have compromised their faith in order to avoid suffering or avoid being made fun of, even, for the name of Christ. Right? How many of us have compromised just to avoid that? And, and I think that this is a huge temptation for us in a culture that's systematically taught to avoid suffering and choose pleasure at all costs. Right? That's ingrained in, in us as a society, to choose pleasure and avoid suffering. So like the example we've been given in this passage, we need to be ready to count the cost of our faith and, and to choose to lay our lives down for Christ, literally even, if necessary. Knowing that true blessing and true life is secure in Him, even if we die. And Pastor Brad spoke on this subject matter last week and did a great job. So listen to his sermon on the podcast if you want more about that. But this leads me to the next point and reason we might compromise. Number two is fear. Out of fear. 
As I said earlier, the, the Roman proconsul carried the power of this double-edged sword, the, the authority of Rome and of the gods. And in the face of such power, of course, that there would be great temptation and fear from those in the church to submit to this two-edged sword, lest they feel its wrath. So this is the thing. We'll always be tempted to compromise if we begin to view something else as more powerful than God. But this is exactly why Jesus is introduced to them in this letter as the one who wields the actual two-edged sword. In a brilliant use of wordplay and symbolism, John is bringing forth powerful Old Testament imagery of the Savior of the world carrying forth judgment with the authority of the Word of God, which is the two-edged sword, and he's using this image as a direct assault against the current culture and so-called authority of Rome. And Hebrews 4.12 also draws on this prophetic imagery when it says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So this, this, this imagery of Jesus wielding, wielding and even coming again in glory with a double-edged sword that's sharper than any other would be an encouragement to the faithful to stand strong against the, the wimpy two-edged sword of Rome. Rome could say, oh, you're guilty of such and such, but, but they know that Jesus knows in their heart that they, that they are righteous, that they are following him. Right? They can stand firm in that truth. But this, was, this would also be a warning to the backsliders and, and compromisers within the church as well, that, that this is the true double-edged sword which they should fear and pledge allegiance to. Not Caesar, not Rome, not Zeus, Jesus. He's the King of kings and Lord of all lords, right? Who through his death and resurrection now holds the power over life and death and who's going to come again to truly and rightly judge the living and the dead in righteousness and in grace. And, and this is a reminder for us today as well, especially in the wake of such divisive and polarizing politics, right? That, that no matter who's president, no matter who's prime minister, we don't lose hope. We don't give in to fear because Jesus still reigns. No, no, no matter what political or ideological pressures or threats or temptations to compromise that we might face from those in authority, we're always called to stand firm and live in allegiance to God alone as citizens of His kingdom, and we have nothing to fear because we're always under the protection and sanctifying work of that double-edged sword. But that leads us into the next way that we might be tempted to compromise our faith, and that's number three, through seduction or instant gratification. So what we, through, what we can see throughout Scripture, actually, is if fear and persecution fail to lead us into compromise, that Satan will most certainly switch his tactics by preying on the desire, desire of our flesh. And this is where the story of Balaam and Balak come into play in the passage. By mentioning this account from Numbers 22 to 24, these believers who read this letter, especially the Jewish ones, would have, would have known exactly what Jesus was implying. But for those of us who don't know the story very well, it goes like this. I'll just sum it up really quickly. So Balak was the king of Moab who felt threatened by the Israelites, and so he hires this man named Balaam to go and curse them. But Balaam finds that he's unable to curse them because God won't let him, and, and he finds that he can only speak what God allows him to speak, which turns out to be blessing over and over again. 
kind of a funny story, up to that point anyways. But frustrated by Balaam's inability to curse Israel, Balak is then given advice from him to mix Moabite women into the Israelite camp to tempt them to turn from God on their own volition. Right? You see, God was protecting them by his strength, but these Moabite women were put into the camp so that the Israelites would turn from God on their, on their own volition. And pretty soon, the Israelite men are not only compromising their covenant to God by sleeping with them, but they're also being led to worship the gods of these Moabite women as well. So cursing and persecution didn't work, but seduction did. And make no mistake, as I, as I said before, Pergamum was, was one of the worst offenders for sexual immorality, for seduction. In fact, the city itself was known for hosting a yearly festival to the god Dionysius, which was called the Dionysia. In this festival, they would usually watch a theater performance at a large amphitheater, some play about the gods, and then they'd head into this temple, which was right next to the theater, in order to engorge themselves on meat cooked at his altar and to drink lots of wine and get drunk, after which they'd vomit it all out. No joke, historically one of the levels of the, the temple is known as the vomitorium. So they'd vomit it all out so that they could do it again. Anyways, all the while they would practice their immorality and prostitution and adultery with, with one another. And since there are kids here this morning, that's enough about that. I will say, though, that, that this pagan festival was so immoral, even to Roman standards, that it was outlawed everywhere else. And so, of, of course, the, the seduction to join in the party, the temptation to, to compromise in this way would have been so strong. And this type of seduction is strong in our society as well. But as we've already learned, this is in direct contrast to the kingdom of God and that in Christ and in the Spirit, this is no longer who we are. Christ has set us free from that. And if we go back into it, we're submitting ourselves to that yoke of slavery. So we should be on our guard. Throw your computer out the window if you have to. But this leads us to the next reason we might compromise. Number four is peer pressure or not wanting to offend. Right? As the passage notes, the church in Pergamum had been tolerating and maybe even encouraging the teaching of a group called the Nicolaitans. Do we remember the Nicolaitans? We met them before. They had tried to infiltrate the church in Ephesus, but Ephesus knew their doctrine, so they immediately kicked them out. I'm assuming then that, that Pergamon, Pergamon probably had the opposite problem. My guess is that they didn't want to offend or seem unloving, so they maybe that's the reason. So they'd allowed this group to have a voice in their community. The sad, the sad truth that this is a, a modern problem too. There are many, there, there are already many Christian denominations and churches that have recently given in to compromise and have started to condone the sexual ethics of the world in an attempt to seem loving or, or not to offend. We do this often, too, as individuals, right? We, we, we compromise our values or give a voice to someone untrustworthy or even encourage someone in their sin because we, we don't want to offend them, right? We might say to, a, to a, you know, a sister in Christ, oh, you're moving in with your boyfriend. Good for you. Lies, Right? The truth is that truth is often confrontational. 
But the truth is what sets us free. We're actually instructed in the Word to, to correct one another as followers of Christ in our sin. But of course, we just need to remember to not be like the church in Ephesus and instead, instead speak the truth to one another in love. Which leads us to the next reason we might compromise our faith, and that's deception. Satan's favorite tool is deception, to twist doctrine, to make us think the Word of God says something that it doesn't, to get us to distrust one another and distrust God. This is what the Nicolaitans were all about, right? Again, they were teaching the church in Pergamum to throw up their hands and exclaim, when in Rome, right? More specifically, we can assume that they were, they were teaching these believers that it was okay with God to, to participate in the, the pagan practices going on around them. Acts 20, 28-31 warns us about people like this. It says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So the goal of the wolf is to deceive and tempt the sheep to turn from their protective shepherd and back onto the world where they will be susceptible to, to be devoured, right? To being devoured. And this is the same reason why Paul tells the Corinthians to, to actually remove those from their community who've been unrepentantly teaching and encouraging others to practice sexual immorality and adultery, saying that, that even a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And he then clarifies this statement so that we don't go around judging one another and judging the world, he clarifies the statement to remind them that this is in reference to those who claim to be believers in the church. This isn't a reference to the world. This is concerning what's happening within the church. Of course, we still have a call to be witnesses for, for Christ to, to those in the world and invite sinners into church. We don't have to be perfect to be in church. But his point is that we shouldn't allow such teaching or practices to be okayed or celebrated within the church by believers, lest we be deceived into thinking it's okay as well. So deception can cause us to compromise. And, that fi and finally then, that the last reason we might compromise our faith is desperation. Desperation. One thing we have to understand is that in this Greco-Roman culture, if you didn't accept and, and fly the flag of their sexual ethics and idolatrous nationalism, you'd be limited, very limited in your ability to live freely and even do things like work in trades or buy food that wasn't dedicated to idols or get married or even go to the hospital. Which means that if you were desperate for food or for a job or something, there would be a huge temptation to compromise your faith for these seemingly basic needs. For example, some historians have suggested that according to local law, young women weren't even allowed to get married until they'd fully participated in the Dionysia festival, if you get my drift. Fully participated. So obviously there would be temptation to compromise one's morality if they wanted to get legally married. And another example, the hospital there, which was called the Asclepion, 
was more of a healing temple dedicated to the god Asclepios, and no one could receive healing or health unless they first worshipped and cleansed themselves at his altar. And so unlike the free health care that we get today, thankfully, um, we get that. But for them, you know, someone who is desperate for, for healing would have definitely been tempted to compromise their faith and worship at this, this altar in order to receive it. So desperation can lead us to compromise our faith. What's interesting uh, about the Asclepion is that those who did get healed would get their names and the ailment that they were healed of written on this white stone pillar. So there was a bunch of these white stone pillars uh, at the back of the Asclepion where they would get their names written on it if they were healed. And, th- and this is most likely what Jesus is speaking to in this letter when he tells them that, that in entrusting and conquering through him instead, by his authority, by his saving grace, that they would be given a new name written on a white stone. Jesus is saying that he's the one who holds the authority over life and death. Jesus is the one who gives us healing and true abundant life. Jesus is the one who provides and gives us a new name. And throughout the Bible, when someone is given a new name, it's, it's symbolic of entering not only into new life, but into a deep and intimate relationship of being known by God. And in another part of Revelation, it says we'll be given the name of Christ written on our foreheads. As Daniel Aiken writes, this new name points to acknowledgement and victory in Christ our high priest, Christ our righteousness. He gives us a white stone. It is his gift never to be taken away. And then in the same breath, he promises those who repent and turn back to him, those, those who resist the temptation to compromise, he promises them the hidden manna. There are many opinions about what this is referring to, maybe the, the hidden manna they, they put in the ark or, or something. Who knows? But ultimately, the, the imagery here is Jesus telling us that, that he is our supply. He is our food now and in eternity. He is the bread of life. And nothing the culture or the government or the world offers can even compare or satisfy or bring life like he does. And so for those who have ears to hear this morning, don't compromise. Don't compromise. Be on your guard and don't listen to those who try to make you compromise. Don't deny the faith for expediency or or a quick fix because it's never worth it. But Jesus always is. So I urge you this morning, in whatever way in your lives that you are compromising, repent and turn to Him. Believe in Him through faith. Find forgiveness. Because through Him and by His Word, which is that double-edged sword, we can be more than conquerors. Through Him, we're given the hidden manna and a new name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word once again, Lord. Lord, that, that your word, like a double-edged sword, cuts to the heart. 
And I thank you for that, Lord God. And I pray that, that this morning that you would cut to our hearts, that you would reveal in, in each one of us here this morning the ways that we have been compromising in our faith. Not, not, to, not to shame us or make us feel guilty or condemn, Lord God, but so that we could, we could lay those things at the foot of your cross and find forgiveness. And on that end, Lord, I thank you that your blood has been shed for the forgiveness of our sins, that you've conquered death, that we can find new life in you. in that hidden manna, that you give us a new name, Lord. Lord, I pray that as a church that we would, we would turn away from the world and turn our eyes upon you. I pray this in Jesus' name.